Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Unheard, I'm Freddie Sayers. Do we deserve what we have? Are the elites any better than the rest of us? Do the right people get to run the world? These are some of the biggest and hardest questions to answer, and I'm delighted to say we have with us today the perfect person to think through them with us, Michael Sandel. He is one of the most famous political philosophers in the world a Harvard professor since the 1980s, author of many best-selling books, including What Money Can't Buy, and most recently, The Tyranny of Merit, and he joins us now. Hi, Professor. Hi, Freddie. Good to be with you. So I'm really keen to dig into this idea of meritocracy and basically who deserves to get what. Uh, your most recent book, I would say the thesis, for at least how it appeared to me, is that the consensus over the past few decades, particularly from the 1980s onwards, through the governments of Reagan and Thatcher, and then Clinton and Blair, and even into Obama, was that to get ahead, to to rise up, to escape your circumstances, um, was the goal of life in some way, and that a perfect society would be something like a perfect meritocracy, where the best people got to rise up. You seem to not think that that's true. Tell us what the problem with that idea is. The main problem with that idea as a political project, Freddie, is that individual upward mobility through higher education is an inadequate response to the deepening inequalities that we've experienced in recent decades. And it's really exerted a damaging, corrosive effect on our public life and on social cohesion. In recent decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics, setting us apart. This has partly to do with the widening inequalities, but it's not only that. I think it has also to do with the changing attitudes towards success that have accompanied the rising inequalities. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and by implication, that those who struggle, those left behind, must deserve their fate as well. This way of thinking about success reflects the seemingly attractive principle of meritocracy. And so it's that principle that I think we need to reconsider, because as it turns out, 
it has a dark side, Freddie. So I suppose it feels at first glance like a, a virtuous principle because it's a way of escaping the kind of arbitrariness of your life situation. And earlier generations, earlier centuries, it feels like you were just given your lot in life and you had to lump it. Whilst some sort of meritocracy assorting mechanism seemed to be fairer. But what you're saying is that actually it, it, it corrupts our, our sense of virtue? Exactly right. Meritocracy seemed to be a way to a more equal society, a more just society, and against the background of a class-based society where chances in life were determined by the accident of birth and hereditary privilege, meritocracy seemed a, brush, a breath of fresh air. Now everyone would be able to compete on a level playing field. And compared to a hereditary aristocracy, that was a good thing. One problem, though, is that the mechanism for the competition, for the equal uh, starting point, is the ability to compete successfully to win admission to top universities. And what we've seen today is that affluent parents have figured out how to pass their privilege onto their children. It's not by bequeathing them vast estates and trust funds. It's by equipping them with the opportunities as, as through adolescent years to compete successfully for admission to the places that confer the credentials and dispense the, the opportunities that a market-driven meritocratic society um, dispenses. So for example, and this is an American example, at, at Ivy League American uh, universities, despite generous financial aid schemes, there are more students in these places from families in the top 1% than there are students from the entire bottom half of the country combined. So part of the problem is what seemed an alternative to hereditary privilege has replicated it through the system of equipping students to, from, from well-off families to compete effectively for admission to the places that dispense the credentials a meritocratic society honors. So it, it's essentially, it's pretending to be a meritocracy or it has the mechanisms of a meritocracy, but in fact, it's still what, a, a, an oligarchy, a, an elite rule society? Well, it's partly that. So that's one of the problems. And that's the most familiar critique of meritocracy. But in my book, The Tyranny of Merit, I, I go further and I suggest there is a second problem. It's not only that we fail to live up to the meritocratic principles we profess. It's that the ideal itself is flawed. So that even if we could somehow create a truly uh, level playing field with genuine equality of opportunity for young people to compete for admission to top universities, there would still be a problem. And it's this, meritocracy, even a perfectly realized one, is corrosive of the common good because it, it enables those, it encourages those who succeed to believe that their success is their own doing. 
It cultivates what I call meritocratic hubris among the winners. And it generates a sense of humiliation among those left behind because it tells them, if you're struggling in the new economy, the problem is not with the structure of the economy. Your failure is your fault because you did not improve yourself by getting yourself admitted to a top university. So this has to do with the attitudes towards success. It goes beyond the problem that we don't fully, fully live up to uh, the meritocratic ideal. These attitudes towards success um, lead the successful to forget the luck and good fortune that help us on our way. It leads the successful to forget their indebtedness to those who make their achievements possible, from family and teachers to community, country, the times in which we live. And this, this cultivated forgetting, this emphasis on, on self-making and on self-sufficiency for own, our own achievements, that's the subtler, more insidious, but ultimately more corrosive effect that even a fully realized meritocracy exerts on the attitudes and outlooks, uh, both of the winners and of those who are left behind. So I'd like to ask about both of those problems, if I could. So the first one is that we haven't realized the meritocracy properly, because essentially privilege is still there. And even though it's not a surefire place at Harvard, there are ways to make sure that your child is much, much more likely to get one. Isn't that a virtue in a way? Like, I mean, you're a, sometimes described as a communitarian. I don't know if you, you maybe reject that label, but certainly the sense of belonging to a community and a family is an important part of having a meaningful life. And if you're a parent, you want to give your children the best advantages possible. To, to strip that capability away from people would be quite dehumanizing, wouldn't it? It would. It would. And so what this suggests, I mean, Plato tried to do this. He imagined a society where this problem, the problem you're raising, Freddie, was solved by having children raised collectively. So the, if, if one believes in the institution of the family as important, morally and developmentally important, then it would be folly to double down on the project of saying, we do want to equip everyone for a race. We want to conceive society as a race. And uh, therefore, the, the only full expression of that project, the full working out of that project requires something like Plato's solution, abolishing the family. But that would be giving up a crucially important institution um, for the moral cultivation um, of young people, for the human goods that family life can realize. So there is an alternative, though, which is to conceive society and the economy is something other than a competitive race. That's the alternative. If one wants to, to double down and make the race perfectly fair, then one is left no alternative but to dismantle the family. You're right about that, which is why I think we should question the meritocratic race rather than abolish the family to make it a truly 
fair race because that you're right that would be the that would be the conclusion so another way of thinking about winning and losing would be to loosen the assumption loosen loosen the rather stringent and demanding assumption that the winners of a, of a race provided it's fair deserve all of the benefits that flow to them from the exercise of their talents that's the sum the assumption worth uh, that that we should challenge so we're, we're kind of on to the second of of these critiques then which is if we're not going to go for meritocracy because we don't think a perfect meritocracy is possible anyway and we're going to cl cleanse ourselves or rid ourselves of the delusion that the people at the top necessarily deserve it how are we to to view them i mean it, it, you're you're kind of starting to sound quite populist here which is that the elites that rule over us aren't there by any just desert they're there kind of arbitrarily and therefore we shouldn't afford them a great deal of respect i suppose you could say there is some sympathy for populism in my critique of elites it certainly is true that part of what's animated the populist backlash against elites is the sense among many ordinary citizens and working people that elites look down on them, that they don't value the contributions that working people make to the economy and to the common good if, if their work does not involve advanced degrees or lustrous credentials. I think this is a legitimate complaint. So in this respect, you're right to hear some sympathy for the populist animus against elites. I think it's justified in part because in recent decades, the elites who have governed, especially in the realm of the economy, have not governed very well. They promised us that their version of globalization involving insisting on unfettered capital flows across borders and the outsourcing of jobs to low-wage countries and the deregulation of the financial industry, that this would all lead to a better economy and therefore a better life for everyone. It didn't happen. We had the financial crash. We had deepening inequalities. We had wage stagnation. We had stalled mobility. So the economic experts, the so-called best and, and the brightest, to borrow David Halberstam's phrase to describe the, the elites who brought us the Vietnam War, they haven't governed very well, even in their own terms. Unfortunately, this has produced a backlash against experts that when the pandemic came, led many people, especially in the US perhaps, to be to be very wary of the public health advice being given by people like our Dr. Fauci, who are trying to persuade people to get vaccinated and wear masks. The economic elites had so discredited expertise that uh, it, that expertise became intensely politicized, and this hampered our ability, certainly in the U.S., to deal with the pandemic. I mean, I would probably take a slightly different view on to you on on that, and I would have more yeah, skept, yeah. more skepticism than you do that the uh, elites in control of the pandemic response are going to be seen to be so flawless in retrospect. Um, but I suppose that's a 
conversation for a different well, I, time. No, I don't. I don't think that they're that they are flawless, or or that they should not be subject to criticism. But I I am uh, expressing a certain sympathy for the skepticism that the public has of experts. I I would say, and perhaps here's here we would differ somewhat. Uh, I think that the performance of the uh, elite economists, the neoliberal economists, who brought us a kind of finance-driven version of globalization that produced this yawning inequality and and financial the meltdown at the financial crisis, I would say their failure uh, was the most decisive failure in producing uh, a kind of backlash against elites. I don't know whether you would agree with with that assessment. I would not say that the elites who governed the pandemic were flawless. In a way, the whole concept of the pandemic response that came from those elites was a kind of, it was a, a parallel version of some of their earlier mistakes, I would argue, which is that it was all about particular charts and particular measurable outcomes. It was a highly technocratic view of the world, which ignored the social bonds. It ignored the, the things that matter most to people, in fact, uh, which is the ability to be together and to conduct their lives in the beautiful way that they are used to. And basically plan to re-engineer all of society temporarily to achieve one specific end. And in that sense, it was kind of dystopian. Um, and a lot of the backlash against the pandemic response comes from really quite a Michael Sandel style intuition. I think there's a lot in that. And without going into the details of the pandemic response in our respective countries, I, I would give one example. I think it's now increasingly uh, agreed that shutting down the schools in the U.S. for the length of time that we did um, was a mistake. Uh, but I think there's a broader point that you're making that is very much in line with the critique I offer in The Tyranny of Merit, which has to do with technocratic expertise. Because when we're talking about meritocracy in the realm of governing, putting aside for the moment the question of income and wealth and market rewards, but in the realm of governing, we have uh, assumed wrongly that virtue in governing, excellence or merit in governing, is largely to be defined in terms of technocratic expertise. And this, I think, is one of the the defects of meritocracy uh, that we've seen in recent decades with regard to governing, what counts as virtue in governing. If one goes back to Aristotle, Aristotle in a way was, a merit, was in favor of a kind of meritocracy in governing because he thought the virtuous, those greatest in civic virtue, should have the most influential voices in democratic deliberation. But what he meant by virtue in governing was not technocratic expertise only or even mainly. It had to do with qualities of character and judgment and orientation to the common good that require uh, qualities of, of uh, practical wisdom, he called it, very different 
from technocratic expertise. So we have radically narrowed what counts as the virtues relevant to governing well. And I think this connects with the, the worry you just articulated, Freddie, about uh, how technocratic ways of governing miss important human and civic dimensions and lead to too narrow an, an idea of the common good. Okay, so Professor, if, we, if we're going to go with you on your diagnosis, which I think we're, we're happy to, that we've got lost, or we've got stuck in some way, and that we've started to value these kind of technocratic credentials, we've got stuck in this kind of nonsense idea of elite universities being the only source of people who should govern us. Phase two must be, what should we do instead? What is the Michael Sandel solution to this problem? How do we, how do we fix our world? Where, where would you start? Well, I think we need to attend to several domains in terms of responding. We, we need to rethink the role of universities in higher education. Uh, uh, we need to recast the terms of public discourse, especially around work and contribution. And we need to rethink the meaning of success. Uh, let me just say briefly a word, it's a, it's a big project. So let me say just briefly a word about each. We have cast uh, universities, higher education, as sorting machines for a market-driven meritocratic society. And this is a mistake. It's a mistake not only for reasons we've been discussing, that it confers advantages on the already privileged and leaves behind a great many people. But this is damaging for the universities themselves, for the intrinsic goods that higher education should serve. Because, and I see it in my students, I see it in my university, speaking out of personal experience. We have allowed the credentializing function of higher education to crowd out the educational function, the intrinsic goods associated with teaching and learning. Students in university, of course, understandably care about equipping themselves for uh, successful careers, but the networking and the careerist and the pre-professional uh, preoccupations can threaten to distract students, but also the institutions themselves from providing an opportunity and a provocation for students to think critically on their own assumptions, to figure out what's worth caring about and why. Here I'm just restating the traditional mission of a liberal arts humanistic vision of higher education. So that's one problem. Does that mean many fewer people going to universities? really, and, and those people being more restricted to genuine academically minded people who might, you know, be teachers or writers or... Is that where we're going, that the sort of career box-ticking function of universities, we sort of strip away to technical colleges or other kinds of... of 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Organization and, and try to try to send fewer people to elite academic universities? I would not say we should send fewer people to university, but I do think we should lessen the box ticking role and function of universities. And I think we should reverse the steep hierarchy of prestige among different forms of learning so that we invest more, but also confer greater honor and recognition and respect to forms of learning, including technical and vocational um, uh, institutions, community-based colleges, and degree programs. Uh, these are woefully underfunded uh, in relation to uh, other forms, the more prestigious forms of higher education. Not only are they underfunded, but the career paths uh, that they prepare people for are not sufficiently appreciated and honored, which really brings us to the second transformation I need, that we need to consider having to do with the terms of public discourse. For decades, center-right and center-left parties have responded to inequality by offering, and not, not to deal with the inequality itself, but to offer a workaround by offering individual upward mobility through higher education. And so we heard endlessly the mantra from parties across the, the political spectrum. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to university. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. What this seemingly inspiring message missed was the insult implicit in it 
because the implicit insult was this. If you are not flourishing in the new economy, and if you haven't been to university, your failure is your fault. Focusing uh, politics on this rhetoric of rising, as I call it in the book, as if that were the solution to inequality, essentially offers to help people clamor up the ladder of success without noticing that the rungs on the ladder are growing further and further apart. So here's how public discourse, I think, should shift. Away from the rhetoric of rising, away from the assumption that individual mobility is an adequate answer to inequality, we should focus less on arming people for meritocratic competition and focus more on the dignity of work, on renewing the dignity of work, of asking and debating what concrete practical steps and policies would be necessary to, uh, to give true meaning to the dignity of work. And this could involve a range of policies on which people of different partisan and ideological persuasions might disagree. But we should be asking how to make life better for everyone, not only how to enable a, a more fair competition to enter the ranks of those with university degrees. We need to remember that most people do not have university degrees. Nearly two thirds in the US do not. The figure is similar in Britain. So it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition for dignified work and a decent life, a university degree that most people don't have. Could I ask then, in your alternative ethic, if you come across an 18-year-old who has the potential to become a university professor, is academically gifted in that way, but whose family are in the building trade, let's say, and who is destined otherwise to be in, uh, in construction, would you say that it's wrong to say that it, it would be better for him or her to become the university professor just because they can, and instead it's just as valuable for them? This is the kind of goodwill hunting uh, conundrum. I don't know if you ever saw that movie a few decades ago, but this is what it centers on. You know, is there, is there as much virtue in all of these different kind of walks of life and that we should just jettison the idea that the more educated or the more academically demanding, elite-sounding route is in any way better? Well, for the 18-year-old you're describing, if she is best suited to being a professor or a molecular biologist, but can't afford the fees, we should organize um, the society and the university system to ensure that she can go to university and develop the talents that she is best suited for. That said, uh, we should not um, accord social honor and recognition in a way that privileges what she does with her life or what, uh, what you or I do with our lives over people who make their contribution in the trades 
So I think it's possible both to say that people should ideally pursue the paths for which their temperament and their gifts uh, equip them, while at the same time saying we should accord greater honor and recognition to a broader range of contributions to the common good. This is not easy to do or even to imagine for the following reason, Freddie. We easily slide into the assumption that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good, but this is a mistake. If that were true, if that were true, then we would have to agree that hedge fund managers actually contribute 900 times more in value to the economy and to the common good than a nurse or a school teacher or a care worker. But even the most devoted defenders of unfettered laissez-faire market economics would be hard-pressed to say that the true social value of that hedge fund manager really is 900 times greater than that of a nurse or a physician. So that's the assumption that we need to question. What What we need to do, here's another way of putting it. We need to reclaim for democratic public deliberation, the question of social value. We have, especially in recent decades, outsourced our moral judgment about what contributions truly matter to markets. But markets, however efficient they may be in delivering goods and services, markets are very, are very poor instruments for making moral judgments about what contributions are truly valuable. So part of what I'm arguing for in the book is to reclaim those moral judgments and those civic judgments for for public debate, for democratic citizens. Let me try and make this even more sort of personal, if I could, Um, because this seems to me the the central conundrum of this. Um, And let's take yourself as an example. You are a highly successful political scientist and uh, professor. You're really, really good at it, evidently. Um, I don't know much about the circumstances of your family or where you were born, but let's just hypothesize that you were born uh, in in a poor rural community somewhere in the US and didn't really have access to the the, the rungs on the ladder, as you call it, that have led you to be uh, such an esteemed Harvard professor and that your, your route otherwise would have been very different, perhaps you know, maybe you'd be running the local store and you'd be a, a hero of the community, but we would never know. The world would never know about your talent as a political philosopher. Would that be a tragedy? Should we try to root out the Michael Sandels and try to find them wherever they may be hidden in our community? In which case, we're, we're back to some sort of meritocracy, aren't we? That's, that's the conundrum I can't quite work out. Here, let me offer a distinction, Freddie, that might might help. And I can see why uh, it's easy to view this as, a, as an insuperable conundrum. We should uh, continue with the project of seeking a truer equality of opportunity. We should. I'm not arguing against equality of opportunity as necessary and important. No one should be held back by prejudice 
or poverty or lack of the privileged parents. So to that extent, equality of opportunity is an important and necessary principle. But it's important to recognize that it's a remedial principle. Remedial in the sense that it's a way of overcoming entrenched prejudice and privilege that lead to unfairness and that deprive the community of the talents and gifts of a great many people who never have a chance. But when I say it's remedial, what I'm suggesting is that even a perfectly um, worked out system of truly equal opportunity would not make for a just society, nor would it make for a good society, especially uh, if it encouraged and if we didn't challenge the assumptions that the winners in such a system morally deserved their place on top. So by all means, we should perfect and persist in seeking equality of opportunity, but we need to supplement equality of opportunity with another principle, another project of equality, which is not, as some people might suggest, a, uh, an equality of outcome where everyone has the same income and wealth. That's not the alternative. The alternative that I argue for, I call um, a broad democratic equality of conditions. And what I mean by it is this, not that everyone had the same income and wealth, but that civil society be designed in such a way that there are public places and common spaces of shared uh, encounter among people from different walks of life, as there would surely be different walks of life, even if we had perfectly equal opportunity. Democracy does not require perfect equality, but what it does require is that people from different social backgrounds, class backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, encounter one another, bump up against one another in the course of our everyday lives, in the public spaces and class mixing institutions that bring us together, often inadvertently within civil society. Churches, churches come to mind, I guess, we, and they're less full than they used to be. Well, churches and congregations of various sorts would be one such source. Union gathering places would be another. But so would be what we may, might think of as the more quotidian um, public places, such as public parks, recreational centers, municipal centers, cultural centers, public libraries, public transportation, sports stadia are places that traditionally- All the things that were closed during the pandemic, in fact. Well, yes, yes. And not only that were closed during the pandemic, but that already even before the pandemic had begun to erode and, and lose their centrality in civil society as a way of drawing people together, downtown areas or, or high street uh, um, business districts are another. So even bef long before the pandemic, 
these places of inadvertent public gathering and class mixing were ceasing to perform that function in part because that with the widening inequality came the tendency and the temptation for the affluent to buy their way out of these public services and public institutions and to, to join a, a private gym rather than to go to a local municipal uh, place to exercise and work out. And there, there are many, many examples of the ways in the schools being perhaps the most important, many ways in which widening inequality has led to the erosion of class mixing public places and common spaces as the affluent buy their way out of public services and provision. So this is what I mean, uh, Freddie, by, a, by attending to a broad democratic equality of condition alongside uh, uh, equality of opportunity, which by itself does not provide the social glue that holds, holds us together and gives us a sense that we are sharing in a common life. And so this, I think, is, is a project fundamental to any attempt to move beyond the divide between winners and losers, to, to reconstruct the civic infrastructure of a shared uh, common life. I mean, you end up with the kind of uni slightly sceptical view of any position, I suppose. And I, I, well, of deservingness. Of, of the deservingness. Deservingness, which is essential to the meritocratic ideology that I'm challenging. Now, if we can detach spurious claims of deservingness from various positions uh, and, and admission schemes, then I have no objection to trying to find those who are best suited for this or that social role. The question is, do we heap upon the winners not only income and wealth, and, and, but also honor and recognition and prestige and respect on that basis. That's what I'm challenging. Let me put it another way. If I need surgery, I want a well-qualified surgeon to perform it. But merit in that sense is independent of the question of deservingness, which is, uh, which is what I uh, challenge. Is what, it, it's this spurious attribution of deservingness, Freddie, that leads to what I call the tyranny of merit in our politics, in our public life, in our economy. That's what I'm challenging. I will end with one final slight challenge to you, which is that if you agree with the logic of everything you've said, um, which I think many people will, and that actually when you dig down, most position is arbitrary or lucky or based on some kind of series of privileges. The choice of what society we live in might come down to, given both, given all options are going to be unfair, whether you go through your life constantly aware of the unfairness of it, looking at anyone who is more advantaged than you and remembering your Michael Sandel mantra that actually they didn't deserve it, or whether it's actually more comforting and more fun and possibly just a happier existence to 
to forget about that and and to allow that life is unfair and almost ascribe some purpose to it beyond what you can understand, whether you call it luck or fate or gift from the gods or whatever. And that is all part of the colorfulness of life that people are in different stations and different positions. And that maybe that's a, a more comforting and more happy way to live, that you don't have to torment yourself that whatever position you're in could have been different if your circumstances had been different. And you just sort of accept it as your gift and roll with it. What say you to that? <laughs> well, I say it is a happier uh, way of life for those who land on top because it spares them the need to, uh, it spares them the need for humility. And uh, I, I don't think that uh, the successful need to torment themselves uh, but to recognize the role of luck uh, that, uh, or the indebtedness uh, that they owe for having landed on top, that need not be a, a source of torment. But I think it should be a source of humility. And this, in a way, comes to the third shift when I said there were three, one about the role of universities, one about rethinking the terms of public discourse. The, the third really, I think, is a kind of moral rethinking, especially among the successful, on how we understand what led to our success. Those who are alive to the contingency of their success, those who are aware, who, who remember the luck and good fortune, that help them on their way are are capable of a humility that is likely to elude those who blithely suppress any recognition of the luck and good fortune that made their success possible and this the humility of recognizing the contingency of our fate is a virtue. It's not only a, a more admirable way to be a person, it's also a civic virtue because it opens us to the range of duties and obligations we owe to our fellow citizens, including those less fortunate less lucky or less gifted than oneself. An appreciation of, of the role of luck in life can prompt a, the humility that says there, but for the accident of birth or the grace of God or the luck of the draw, there go I, that could be me. And this humility, I think, is the civic virtue Freddie, that we need now. It could be the beginning of a way back from the harsh ethic of success that sets us apart, the beginning of a way beyond the tyranny of merit to a more generous, less rancorous public life. Professor Michael Sandel, thank you so much. 
Thank you, Freddie. That was the political philosopher and Harvard professor Michael Sandel, arguing that meritocracy is not only a myth that is impossible to achieve, but that even if it was achieved, it would not be equivalent to a fair society. It certainly made me think, as I hope it did you too, whether we deserve what we have. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard Ideas. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.